morning. It's great to see everybody who's here. We have a wonderful crowd. We've got so many friends and family and visitors that are here, and we just are excited for this opportunity to worship together and learn more about God. Thank you for being here. As for an, as for an introduction, I'd like to talk about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book that has puzzled the minds of its readers since its inception. Unlike other books of the New Testament, the book of Revelation is filled with apocalyptic literature. This style of writing communicates its message through symbols and signs, utilizing numbers, objects, places, and animals in a figurative, non-literal manner. Because of its complex imagery and symbolism, Revelation is widely considered the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret. While it is true that various parts of the book are considered confusing, what is clear is the book's general message and theme, and that is victory in Christ. This theme, victory in Christ, becomes evident when we stop to look at the phrase overcome or the word overcome, overcomes or overcame, occurs over 16 times in 22 chapters. So the theme is quite clear. Here's but a few examples within the book of this theme. In chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In chapter 2 and verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 3 and verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And lastly, 
chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. These truths were written to encourage and exhort Christians to live faithfully unto death, despite facing persecution in a perilous and dying world. To the Apostle John, the greatest source of spiritual motivation is to understand that, in the end, our suffering-filled service will end in salvation. In the end, Christ will be victorious and we will have overcome. The question now stands, what are we to overcome? What's going to answer this question is the Gospel of John and John's epistles, his letters. First, we see that Jesus came to overcome the world. And thus he did in John chapter 16 and verse 33. As Christians were commanded and expected to follow Christ's example, and we overcome the world just like Jesus did through our faith. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. Now, John gives us another clue in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 where he says, You are of God, little children. And have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Within this verse, there is both comfort and warning. John encourages us that this spiritual battle is winnable because he who is in us, Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. So within this verse, we learn that it is not what, but who we are to overcome. Who stands in the way between us and heaven? That is the devil. That is Satan. The last verse we're going to read as our opening thoughts comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, where the Bible, John, he gives a much more detailed explanation or description of our spiritual battle with the devil. He says this, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his, art and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Before we can overcome the devil, we must first understand who he is, what he does, and what his role is in God's plan or scheme of redemption. This morning, our sermon is about Satan. And the title of it is The Accuser of Our Brethren, coming from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Before we can even talk about what this verse is saying, we got to start with Satan 101. we got to start with the crash course and the understanding 
who Satan is. What's going to be the focal point or the starting point is that Satan is an angel. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 12, reading from the NIV, it says this, And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. See, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a specific group of people, the church in Corinth, and they were experiencing a specific problem. There were these Christians who were pretending to be apostles. And we get that, and we see that in verse 13. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading or disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So we learned that in the first century, there was a problem. There were people who were not apostles, who were pretending to be apostles because they wanted the power and authority that apostles were treated with and were given. Same thing happens today. When I went to Africa, I told you guys, there are people who claim to be apostles. There are people in this country, in Auburn, who claim to be apostles. Paul said, they're fake. It's not true. It's not real. He says they're deceitful workers, and he goes on to compare them to Satan. He says in verse 14, And no wonder they disguise themselves, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So Paul here, he compares these apostles and he says they're really fake. They're kind of like Satan. Because Satan and these men, they're similar because they disguise themselves. Outwardly they appear to be good, but inwardly they're evil. It's just like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. There are men who are false prophets and they come to you in sheep's clothing, but they are actually ravenous wolves. They look like you, they talk like you, but they're not of you. They're actually evil. And Paul compares these false apostles to Satan. Here's the difference though. These false apostles were never apostles to begin with. But Satan, he was an angel, and he is an angel. Make no mistake about it. God created everything in the beginning, and he said it was good. That includes Satan. Satan wasn't always bad, but he chose to do evil. Angels have free will. They have choice. So we see from this verse, the devil is an angel. Now here's a quick crash course. We're going to read these verses quickly. Suffice it to say this. The devil was an angel in heaven, but he rebelled in heaven, and these other angels followed him, and because of that, they were cast down to the earth. And when Satan was cast to the earth, he was left to roam the earth and acted as the ruler of this world. The fate that awaits him is hell. That's a lot right there. We don't really read these verses or talk about the devil in this way often. So I want to read them very quickly. The Bible says in Jude 1 and 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain or rebelled, 
They left their own abode. He abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, Satan cast to earth. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This left such a lasting impression on Jesus that during his ministry, he recalls Satan's fall. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Great was that fall. What a sight to see an angel fall from grace, to fall, excuse me, from heaven. The Bible says in Job chapter 1, 6 and 7, when verse 7, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Where have you been? He asks him. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So the devil is on earth. He roams the earth because he was cast out of heaven. The Bible continues on in John 12, 31. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, the devil, will be cast out, Jesus said. Jesus' whole goal was to overcome the world and to cast out and overcome the ruler of this world. That is the devil. And once again, the devil's fate that awaits is hell. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, the Bible says, Jesus saying, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's pretty much everything the Bible, the New Testament says about the devil. He was in heaven, he rebelled, was cast to the earth, he roams the earth, he was the ruler of this world, and the fate that awaits him is hell. Now the question is, why did he rebel? And we learn this answer in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul is describing and discussing the qualifications necessary to be an elder. To be an elder. Notice what he says. He says that an elder, he cannot be a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Maybe that doesn't make sense to you. Here's the easy to read version. This is written for second graders. I like this one. They say it like this. An elder must not be a new believer. He can't be a new Christian. It might make him too proud of himself. Then he would be condemned for his pride the same as the devil was. So Paul here, he says, we can't just let any new Christian man become an elder. He's got to be seasoned. He's got to be experienced. He's got to show that he's faithful to God and his doctrine and that he can rightly divide God's word. The whole point of this, the principle at hand is, before you can ever lead men, you must first learn to follow God. Before we can ever lead men, we must first learn to follow God. Before a boy can become a father, he must first learn and understand how to be a son. Paul here is telling new Christians Stay with it, you're not ready. Because you might fall into the same trap as the devil. You might become puffed up with pride. 
And we learn from this verse, the reason why the devil rebelled was because of pride and arrogance. The Bible gives more detail into Satan's fall in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Maybe you've never read these verses. These are very interesting and create a wonderful but sad picture. In Isaiah 14 and verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will be God. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. The devil, he was not satisfied with being an angel. He wanted to be God. He wanted his own throne above the stars of heaven. He wanted to be like God. And for this, he rebelled. And he was cast down to the earth. Now, when we stop and talk about pride, what's interesting to me is that pride is the only sin people arrogantly confess. Pride is the only sin people arrogantly confess. Here's what I mean. People are not ashamed. I'm so proud. I'm so arrogant. I'm so egotistical. But I'm not as bad as him. No one ever says that about any other sin. But for some reason with pride, it's cool to have, apparently, in today's society. But the entire Bible condemns pride because pride is the quickest way to be like the devil. That's the first step to being like the devil, is to be proud and arrogant and conceited, to be haughty. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. In chapter 21 and verse 4 it says, A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. It's a sin to be proud. Proverbs 16 and 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's exactly what happened to Satan, and great was his fall. I just want to say this real quickly. Maybe you're here, and you struggle with pride. There are some very simple steps. Number one, we got to acknowledge it. We got to recognize it. We can't change anything we don't acknowledge. Number two, we've got to put other people before ourselves. We got to practice servanthood. We have to have a heart of a servant. Jesus emptied himself of all pride. He didn't have any pride to begin with. And he washed the disciples' feet, who he was above. What a wonderful example of servanthood. If you want to overcome pride, practice contentment. Arrogant people never feel like they get what they deserve because they always feel like they deserve more. Practice contentment. And here's the fourth one. If we want to overcome pride, you got to learn to laugh at yourself. 
You gotta learn to laugh when we make mistakes. It's okay, I'm not a big deal, is what I tell myself. And if we all think that, that's gonna help us with pride. These few steps will go a long way. Not only have we seen that the devil was an angel, that he fell because of arrogance, but that he is our adversary. He is our enemy, Peter says. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter gives this grave image. He gives this great picture in our minds. It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys have been to the jungle. I've been pretty close to the jungle in Africa, but I wouldn't say I was in the bush. The picture he gives is of someone who's walking in the jungle. And there is a lion crawling around, stalking his prey. You know who the prey is? It's us. Peter says, get your mind right. Have a clear mind. Stay focused. Be vigilant. Exercise all your energy on this. Because the devil is waiting to get us when we're at our weakest, when we're at our most susceptible point. When we're at our most susceptible point. In football, we had a saying, you got to stay ready so you ain't got to get ready. It's the same thing spiritually. We've got to stay ready so we're never weak. But what's going to help us in overcoming the devil is a passage or an idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. There the Apostle Paul says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That word device is just another word for tactic or strategy. So what's going to help us overcome the devil is if we learn his techniques and how he tries to attack us. So we'll look at 10 very quickly. What we can see as we look at Satan's devices is, number one, Satan, he masks himself, he disguises himself. The reason why this is important is this. I guarantee you, I hardly make guarantees, but I guarantee you this. If I ask you what Satan looks like, you will probably say this. You have probably heard this. He's a little red guy. He's got two horns on his forehead. He's got a tail in between his legs. He's got a pitchfork in his hand. And that's how I know who the devil is. Yeah, no. That's not the devil. The devil wouldn't be good at his job if you could spot him from a mile away. The problem with the devil is that he tries and he does camouflage himself. And he camouflages himself amongst and amidst God's people. He's going to look like you and me. He's going to come in the form of us when we are led away by our passions and evil desires. Number two, the devil is the tempter. His whole goal is to tempt men and women, and he's been doing that since the Garden of Eden. He wants to get everybody to sin and everybody condemned to hell. That's his whole M.O. Number three, we see that Satan does not fight fair. He fights when we are the most susceptible. This is evident when we look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. 
Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. He's not had anything to eat or drink. And then the Bible says Satan comes along. Usually, I don't know how it is about you, but I can tell you about me. You want to know when I sin the most? It's when I'm by myself. Jesus is by himself. He's in a very vulnerable position. And he's very weak. He's not eaten for over a month. Have you ever not had food or drink in over a month? Me neither. Satan doesn't fight fair. He goes up to Jesus. He said, if you're the son of God, why don't you make those stones bread? You think he touched a soft spot? Yes. Satan doesn't fight fair. He doesn't care about where we're at. He wants us when we're at our weakest. He's looking for an opportune time. Number four, we should see that Satan does not give up even if we overcome one temptation. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, he refutes this temptation to turn stones into bread. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this is what Satan does. He says, okay, okay. You want to play that game? You want to quote the Bible at me? I'll quote the Bible. You see, the devil knows the Bible. And you know what he quoted from for his second temptation? Psalm 91. 11 and 12. Do any of you guys know what Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says off the top of your head? The devil does. The devil knows the Bible more than God's people. Which is unfortunate, and it shouldn't be that way. But what we see here is that Satan didn't take no for an answer. Just because Jesus overcame the first, he didn't get to ride off into the sunset, no. The devil, he changed his strategy. He did not give up, and he will not give up with you and me. He will keep on trying to tempt us. And like we saw in number five, Satan knows scripture and tries to use the word of God against us. But number six, here's what we see. Satan usually attacks those who don't know the word. We see this from the Garden of Eden. Some of us, all of us, some of us, we've studied the gospel from Genesis, and we've talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan, he goes up to Eve, he asks her a very simple question. He goes, you can't eat of all the trees. And she says, oh, the tree that's in the midst of the garden, we can eat of all the trees. We just can't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. We can't eat it and we can't touch it or we might die. If you look at the Bible, that's not what God said. She got the command of God wrong. God never said they couldn't touch it. And God, God didn't say they might die. He said the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. She adds to God's word. She adds touch. She takes away. She says, you might die. This is someone who didn't know God's word. And that's exactly why Satan went to tempt her and not the man. Because Adam received the command of God directly from God. Eve wasn't even made yet. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17. By the time that was given. 
So he attacked the weak link. I want to ask a question to the people who are married. Which one of you is the weak link? Which one of you is the one who Satan would attack? A humble person, the husband and wife, should both say, me. The key is for both partners to be strong, because as the family goes, so does the congregation. So does the congregation. We all need to know God's word, or the devil will come for us. Number seven, Satan caused Eve to question and doubt the word in order to try and make God seem unfair. Notice his question in Genesis 3 and verse 1. God said in Genesis 2, you could eat of all the trees. You just can't eat from this one. Satan comes around, he goes, you can't eat of all of them? God's unfair. He's holding you back. He doesn't want you to experience life to the fullest. And that's how Satan works today. He wants us to overlook everything he allows us to do and hyper-focus and fixate on the one thing we're not allowed to do. The one thing we're not allowed to do to try and make God seem unfair. God's not being unfair. He knows what's best. He's giving us guardrails on our road to heaven. Guardrails to protect us. Number eight, Satan downplayed the consequence of sin. God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan changed the whole command with one word. He said, you shall not surely die. You can sin and God won't punish you. Whenever we sin, at least I can speak for myself, you know what I think before I sin, knowingly? This ain't going to be a problem. I won't get punished for this. That's how we reason with ourselves that it's okay. But that's a tactic of the devil. Where there's sin, there is death. Number nine, God enticed, or Satan entices, man, God's holding you back. He just doesn't want you. He knows, and the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. That's what a lot of people think today. That's why they want to have the full life experience because they want to dabble in all things. They don't want anything kept from them. And lastly, number 10, Satan's got three methods of attack. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every sin falls under this category, these three categories of temptation. Real quick, I want to give an illustration. Go figure, it's from sports. I want to talk about a sport I never played. Baseball. I don't know a lot about baseball, but I know the whole point is the pitcher, he's trying to strike out the batter. Very simple. The pitcher, he's trying to get three strikes because three strikes are out. Now to accomplish this, a good pitcher, he's got a wide variety or arsenal of pitches. He could throw the fastball. He could throw the curveball. He could throw the changeup. He could throw a slider. He could throw a cutter. Now, some pitchers, 
they're good at a few. But the great pitchers, they're really good at one. And depending on a few factors, number one, how they're pitching that day, number two, who they're facing, what the weakness and strength is of the one that's up to bat, and number four, what's my strength on that day? Based on a few factors, they determine what pitch they're going to throw. Perhaps one of the greatest pitchers of MLB history, of Major League Baseball history, yep, you guessed it, Mariano Rivera. Not a household name. Mariano Rivera played 19 seasons for the New York Yankees. He specialized in one pitch, the cutter. I don't know baseball. I am told that the best stat to uh, measure a pitcher's success is ERA. If you don't know what baseball is, I had to look this up last night because the baseball stats confuse me. ERA is earned runs on average per inning. So how many runs you allow per inning, that stat is measured over the whole season. Over Mariano Rivera's entire 19-year career, he's got a 2.21 ERA. That's 150% better than the average of pre, uh, pitchers that pitched during his career. In other words, he's good. He's a big deal. But if we continue with this idea of baseball and turn it into spiritual stuff, spiritual application, this is why this is important. The devil, these are his three pitches. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's had 4,000 years of experience. You know what his pitch rate, his strikeout rate is? 99.9999%. The only person to overcome him is Jesus. Is Jesus. The reason why we discussed this at the last is this. If you think I know about the devil, I don't need to hear this, you've already lost. Everybody else throughout history from Adam and Eve has sinned. It would be extremely arrogant to listen to everything we covered up to this point and go, I ain't need that. I'm already, I'm fine. I'm perfect. I've got this all down. We have all sinned and fallen short, but there's good news. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Despite everything we've talked about, despite his entire strategy and all of his tactics, the New Testament says, James says, the devil is overcomable. It is possible to defeat him, and we do that through the word of God, just like Jesus did. It is written, it is written, it is written. He said three times in the wilderness, and that is how he remained faithful to God. He knew God's word. He knew what to do. He knew what not to do. And he disciplined his body and put it under subjection. He had self-control. And we need to as well. Our weapon in this spiritual warfare is the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. Now, for the last 10 minutes or so, 
The last thing we're going to discuss in this sermon, we've seen that Satan was an angel. He fell because of arrogance. He is our adversary. We're going to look at his role as the accuser. And we're going to end where we began. You see here, in Revelation 12 and verse 10, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of our brethren. Here is an example in Zechariah 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. What's Satan's role in all of this and all of the Bible? It's to point the finger and to go, sinner, sinner, sinner. He can't go to heaven. She can't go to heaven. She sinned. And that's all he does day and night in the throne room of God. As he talks about you and he talks about me before God Almighty. And he says, they can't be your people. They have sinned. They have sin. Satan's tactics go as following. He's got two arguments. He's only got two arguments, but they were great arguments. To God, Satan opposes mankind. To God, he says, men are sinners. The dilemma is this. If you're holy like you say you are, and they sin, they can't be near you. You've got to separate yourself from them. And if you're holy like you say you are, you've got to punish them. Or else, you're a liar. That's what Satan said to man. To man, he said, God's a liar. He won't punish you. He won't condemn you if you sin. And there was this two-way argument that the devil had in heaven and on earth. And where was the strength of this argument? The law of God. That might be a surprise. What was the basis of Satan's argument? It was the law of God. He used the word of God against God's people. And here is spiritual law and order. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 1 John 3 and 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. When you put all these verses together, you see law and order. First comes a law, then there comes sin, then there comes death. There would be no sin if there was no law. There would be no sin if there was no law because sin is lawlessness. You can't be lawless unless there's a law. So the strength of sin is the law. The devil uses God's law against God's people. When there's law, there's sin, possibility of sin, and when we sin, it leads to death. With all this in mind, some people, they reason this. It's God's fault we sin because he gave us law. If we didn't have law, then there would be no sin. The law is sinful because it produces death. Folks, that's not true. That's a lie. 
And very quickly, we need to go and disprove of this lie. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul, I gotta love, you got to love the Bible. Everything we could possibly talk about is spoken of. Romans 7 and 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known the covetousness, not known covetousness, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The law doesn't make people sinful. The law teaches people what sin is. The law is not evil. And we don't have time to read the rest of these verses. If you've got more questions or curiosity on this, read the rest of Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. Because Paul explains there, the law of God is good. It depends how you use it, though. Because Satan, he uses the law to tempt men. God uses the law to test men. Satan wants to weaken us, but God uses the law to strengthen us. Satan wants us to fail, but God wants us to prevail. Satan uses the word to indict us, but God uses the word to instruct us. Satan uses the law to make us guilty, but God gives us the law to keep us innocent. Satan wants us to be faithless, but God faithful. The, be the people who believe and listen to Satan, they believe that the law makes man sinful. But the Bible teaches law exposes man's sinfulness. The law is not the source of our evil. Sin and temptation is by the devil. Satan uses the law to bring death, but God, life. Our last illustration for this sermon is going to be uh, that of a courtroom. One thing you guys don't know about me is, because, is that before I became a preacher, I wanted to be a lawyer. The only reason why I wasn't a lawyer is because you got to have money to go to law school. I always thought being a lawyer was so cool, watching in the movies, getting up in a fancy suit, getting up, talking before people. Yep. <laughs> so with that in mind, we want to paint this picture that we've been doing this whole sermon. That is, we are talking about the heavenly courtroom that we all are about to experience when Jesus comes back. This is the heavenly trial. The Bible calls this the day of judgment. In order to have a day of judgment, you've got to have a few positions occupied or fulfilled. You've got to have a judge. The judge is someone who, I am told, is responsible to try lawsuits and make important legal rulings. You know who's the judge? Jesus for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be judged by Jesus. But in every court or trial, there is a prosecutor. The prosecutor is a lawyer who brings charges against the defendant. He is the accuser. Go figure, that's Satan. Satan is the accuser. His whole goal is to say, sinner, can't make it, can't be with God, go to hell. But then there's the defendant. You know who that is? That's us. 
We're the ones being tried on that great and final day. And you know what? Here's the question we all got to think about this morning. What are you going to plead? Some are going to plead innocent. Some are going to plead guilty. But you know, it's not going to actually matter what you plead. It's not going to matter what you say or think. It's going to matter what God knows. Some who say innocent, they will not be innocent. They will be guilty. But before Jesus, you want to know what would have been our sentence? Guilty. Guilty. Now, one of us in this room, on the day of judgment, could say, I am perfect in my thoughts, in my actions, in my words, in my dealings. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, and the wages of sin is death. Not any one of us in this room this morning would have a shred of hope if it weren't for this verse. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When you identify, when you look at what the word advocate means, it literally means someone who stands before a judge and is an intercessor or mediator. We've got a lawyer, folks. And thus the heavenly courtroom picture is fulfilled. We've got the judge who is Jesus, the prosecutor who is the devil, the defendant, that is you and me. But we've also got an, a, a defense attorney. Jesus. There is a saying, good lawyers know the law. Great lawyers, they know the judge. But you want to know the perfect situation and position to be in? Is when your lawyer and judge, when the judge and the lawyer are the same person. Jesus is both. You ever realize that? The whole system is set up for us to be victorious. For us to succeed. Because the one who's judging us, the one who's defending us, is the one who died for us. Through him, we have amnesty. Amnesty is a, is a fancy legal word that means forgiveness. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus came down so that we could go up. He was wounded so we could be healed. He died so that we could live. The sinless for the sinful, God for man. How poetic. How beautiful is the gospel. And thus, the two arguments of the devil, when he told Satan, you can't be with men, they're sinners, you're holy, you can't dwell with them, you've got to punish them. And when he said to man, Satan said, God's a liar, he won't punish sin. God destroyed both arguments with Jesus. God has made a way to forgive sinful men and punishes sin at the same time through the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And through Jesus' sacrifice, men can be forgiven. God, at the end of the Bible, is found to be He is just and He is the justifier. He maintains His perfect righteousness. 
handling sin, keeping his promise, keeping his word. And as we close this sermon, we see a beautiful truth. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no more penalty or guilt or punishment or consequence to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus. The million dollar question this morning is this, folks. If there's no condemnation in Jesus, how does one enter Jesus? For as many of us as were baptized into Christ, you get into Jesus by being baptized. Romans 6, 3 and 4. There is no more fear of guilt or shame or hellfire for the one who has been converted and for the one who continues. A lot of people, they read this verse, they stop in the middle. The verse actually says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. we got to live spiritually minded. We can't just live the same way. The Bible does not teach once saved, always saved. That's a lie. The Bible teaches if you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to get baptized and you've got to live like Jesus for the rest of our life. Conversion and continuation, that's where we find salvation. And we're going to close with reading two verses. We have a wonderful announcement. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because Jesus won, because He overcame, you can win, you can overcome, and we have to keep going until the end. And we will end where we began. Revelation 12, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of His testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Just like the the song that Johnny led, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. That's the story of the Bible. We're all guilty, but then Jesus. He overthrew the devil, and so can you and me. Maybe you're here and have not had your sins forgiven in the blood of Christ. Be baptized or perish. Be baptized or perish. Perhaps you are a Christian, but you've sinned. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. If there's one of either class, please come while we stand and sing the song of imitation.
Isaac, that really was a fantastic lesson on knowing the enemy. Our adversary is the devil, and we need to know him to beat him. We're coming to the communion portion of our service, and the man that we're going to be talking about, thinking about, honoring, respecting, and died so that we could win. And to win, we need to know the devil. And he really brought it to us this morning, sharing what the devil's about, what his intentions are, and how we can know him better to beat him in our life. As I mentioned, we now come to the communion portion of our service where we really do, we want to remember Jesus Christ. We're here to proclaim that we believe in Jesus Christ. And typically when I come up here and have an opportunity to wait on the table, my goal is to present maybe a story of his life where we can see him, we can think about him in such a way, we can maybe see him walking up the hill to Golgotha. And he's got that cross that he just can't carry anymore, and he has to get help to take it up there. Or maybe it's a story of his ministry in those three years that he was preaching, and you can see the people circled around him as he's teaching his word. You can see different stories of his life that's presented in the scriptures. But today I want to do something a, a little bit slightly different. I want to tell a story or read a scripture that was prophesied about 700 years prior to Jesus walking on the face of the earth. A man by the name of Isaiah presents a beautiful passage of scripture that talks about our Lord and Savior in a way that I don't think any of us could ever do. Let's read what Isaiah has to talk about in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah says, who would have believed what we heard? Who saw the Lord's power in this? He grew up like a small plant before the Lord, like a root growing in a dry land. He had no special beauty or form to make us notice him. There was nothing in his appearance to make us even desire him. He was hated and he was rejected by people. He had much pain and suffering, people who do who would not even look at him. He was hated, and we didn't even notice him. But he took our suffering on him and felt our pain for us. We saw his suffering and thought God was punishing him, but he was wounded for the wrong that we did. He was crushed for the evil that we did. The punishment which was made the punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed because of his wounds. We all have wandered away like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way, but the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil that we have done. He was beaten down and he was punished, but he didn't even say a word. He was like a lamb being led to be killed. He was quiet as a sheep is quiet while its wool is being cut. He never opened his mouth. Men, they took him away roughly and unfairly. He died without children to continue his family. He was put to death. He was punished for the sins of my people. He was buried with the wicked men and he died with the rich. He had, nothing, he had done nothing wrong and he had never lied. But it was the Lord who decided to crush him and make him suffer. 
the Lord made his life a penalty offering. But he will see his descendants and live a long life. He will complete the things the Lord wants him to do. After his soul suffers many things, he will see life and be satisfied. My good servant will make many people right with God. He will carry away their sins. For this reason, I will make him a great man among people. And he will share in all things with those who are strong. He, Jesus, willingly gave his life and was treated like a criminal. But he carried away the sins of many people and asked forgiveness for those who sinned. That's Isaiah speaking in chapter 53. 700 years about a man that we're remembering today prior to his life on this earth. And Jesus, when you consider that he had never lied, that he had never done wrong, and that he was crucified and hated and spit upon for the life that he lived in a desire to save souls and to, to defeat the enemy, to defeat Satan, he made a request to those apostles, to those disciples that were with him in that upper room. And after they had taken up the Passover, he implemented the Lord's Supper. And he said, this is how I want you to remember me and my life and what I did. He only lived to be about 33 years old, and his life was taken from him in a physical form. But we know that it came back in a spiritual form. We can read about that walk that he took to Emmaus with a couple of men. They would eventually recognize that he was Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper in such a way. I want you to have an unleavened loaf of bread. This unleavened loaf represents the sinless body. He had one body, there is one loaf. We also have before us this cup of blessing, as it's described in the Bible. The cup which represents the new covenant that we're now under. We're not underneath that old law. We're underneath the new law. And the contents, the fruit of the vine, which represents the blood that he shed for us to have that opportunity to have a home in heaven with him. So let's do as Jesus asked. He asked us to do this. He wanted us to remember him at least once a week. We know we're supposed to pray all the time. We're supposed to reach out to our Father all the time. And because of Jesus, we have that great privilege and that opportunity to reach the Father through Jesus. Let's give thanks for the bread at this time. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this bread, which to us is the communion of the body of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that we partake of this in a manner that would be well-pleasing and acceptable with you. This prayer we offer in Jesus' name. Amen.
there was that was overlooked by the bread? If not, let's give thanks for the cup of blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this cup of blessing, which to us is the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we would partake of this in a manner well-pleasing and acceptable with you. This prayer we offer in Jesus' name. Amen.
Was there one that was overlooked by the cup of blessing? If not, then this, communes, this concludes the communion portion of our service. It's been a blessing to be able to partake of it with each and every one of you. We also now come to a, another part of our service where we have this wonderful privilege to be able to give back as we've been blessed. We try at our congregation to take care of those that are in need, to help spread the gospel. If you look on this board over here, you can see that we're supporting preachers here in our country and in foreign lands, in a foreign country. And we have people that are in need on this board over here, and we um, want to help. We help our um, elderly as much as we can, our widows. I don't believe that we have any orphans that we're helping at this time, but we do try to um, use this money in a way that the scriptures teach us that we should use it. So let's give back as we've been blessed at this time. Um, I count it a blessing to have been able to worship with each and every one of you that made it a priority to be here. It's great to see familiar faces. Uh, Gavin and Michaela here today, uh, newly married. Uh, congratulations to both of you. It's great to see Kristen and, and the little ones hearing the little amens from them. Um, it was fantastic. Just kind of, we haven't had the real little ones in our congregation for a while, so it's been really sweet seeing one sleep on Kelly there, too. But um, it's just been a great lesson. Isaac, thank you so much. Um, let's all remember to think upon it and, uh, and uh, grow from it. Um, I was uh, given a few announcements. We've got the uh, meeting, a Labor Day meeting down in Oakdale with Jonathan Edwards starting on the 30th of August going through the September 3rd. And then we also, for our meeting, it's a little ways out, but we got uh, upcoming with uh, Carl Johnson, and I believe that was October year October the 4th through the 8th we'll have Carl Johnson here so let's mark our calendars and plan on being here for attending that 
And then also, uh, we're going to have a, a celebration downstairs uh, for Gavin and Michaela. If you can stay for that, that's great. And afterwards, the uh, young people study um, with Daniel and Isaac will be up here in the sanctuary after that. So um, were there any other announcements that need to be made at this time? Okay. And do you know, has he received a scooter or something that he was looking for? Don't know. Okay. Um, I do have a wheelchair if that's of use, but it's probably a little overkill. Um, but okay. Any other announcements that need to be made? There's another band that comes pretty often. That gland or tumor that he has in his head that I believe was a non-malignant one, they took it out and it's coming back. And he's got an MRI scheduled here in a couple of days. He just started a new job and so he's kind of concerned about missing time with his new job a little bit. And I believe that's why he's not here today. And last week it's because of this tumor that's come back into his head. And is has it been confirmed that it's back or is that his just his intuition that it's back? His intuition. Okay. Well, let's pray that uh, um, that the MRI will reveal good news and, and a quick uh, remedy for that. Let's also remember to pray for the Garcias. Um, Lily, let's lift her up in prayers and, and uh, Kyle and Katie. And all that are on our prayer board here. So let's just be praying for one another and um, we'll have a final song and be dismissed in prayer.